partial obedience is disobedience. Are you still with me? Partial obedience is disobedience. It's not good enough. 75 is not good enough. 80 is not good enough. God demands 100% obedience. You see, when we go through transitions in life, just like David, we call this liminal spaces, it either proves our integrity or proves our true weaknesses. It will either prove who we really are or what we can be. Why? Because it's easier, it's easy to live your faith when you're in an ideal situation. It's easy to behave when you are among the godly people or in a godly community. But you see, it's harder to behave when you're alone. It's easier to run wild and let go when there's nobody looking at you. It's called integrity. And I'm saying we all fail in the area of integrity. But it is precisely in transition that our integrity is put to the test. You see, it's tempting to believe that once you become a Christian, everything will be okay. Have you heard about it? Is there an impression that once you become a Christian, once you start following Jesus, that all your problems will be resolved? That's not true. Okay. When you're a new Christian and you have this kind of impression that when you start believing in Jesus, everything is okay. And then you start, you start reading good verses like, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Amen. Yes? We love it. I mean, this is for us. It's very positive. And then you hear Jesus saying, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Oh, man. It's like a jackpot. Come on. Who doesn't want this? Let me ruin your day a little bit. See, there's also verses in the Bible that talks differently. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. The what? If I try to live a godly life, I, that's the reward for living a godly life? Persecution? It doesn't make sense. But exactly. Because people won't bother if you are following the crowd. People won't bother if they think you're different. Uh, people won't bother if they think you're not different. People will just go along with you. But if you are godly, if you are following God, you will be persecuted. Listen, we are in the middle of a cultural revolution right now here in the West. It flies under the banner of woke ideology. Actually, to be precise, it's coming from the philosophy called postmodernism. Postmodernism is a belief that truth is nothing but a social construct. And so is gender, and so is race, and so is religion, and so are national borders. It is not true. Let me ruin your day a little bit more. Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Are you ready for this? Are you disappointed now? Look, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I looked in all translations, and it's still the same. You've got to bear your own cross if you want to become a disciple. What is a disciple? Follower of Jesus. Any follower of Jesus, all followers of Jesus, must bear his own cross. 
Pastor, what are you talking about? I thought Jesus was the cure to all diseases and my bad habits and my addictions. I thought Jesus died for me so I can be rich and prosperous and healthy. And you're telling me now that I have to bear my own cross to become a disciple? What about those preachers who are telling us that if we give some, God will multiply it back? Yes? Well, there's a... The Bible talks about them in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Bible calls them false teachers because they don't give you the whole picture. You see, they are false teachers because they tell us that holiness comes without sacrifice, that blessedness comes without suffering. See, Christianity must go hand in hand with suffering and blessedness. We have to bear the cross if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I still find it fascinating when people read Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, for you, but seriously disregard the fact that this Lord's Prayer is predicated on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I mean, Jesus never tells us that blessed are the rich and the famous. I've never seen that in the Bible, have you? The Bible does not say that. In fact, the Aaronic blessing, the very famous Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6 did not even mention riches and prosperity and health. Here it goes, Numbers 6.24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. There's no mention of riches and prosperity. There's no mention of good health. It all talks about God showing his face on you. Because blessedness is not about prosperity. Let me give you a a more balanced picture. Blessedness is neither prosperity nor poverty. Blessedness goes beyond that. On one hand, you can be rich and yet purposeless without God. Think about Solomon in the latter days of his life. On the other hand, you can also be poor and yet rich with God's mercy. Think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You see, blessedness has nothing to do with poverty nor riches. Blessedness is way beyond more than that. True blessedness is not about having everything you need at your fingertips. True blessedness is about being at the center of God's will. That's what true blessedness is. See, for 16 months, David was in transition. He was a fugitive from justice. He was anointed as king, but he was not sitting on the throne. He was probably like thinking, oh man, what happened to my life? Now that I'm following Jesus, now I'm being persecuted. What's happening to my life? Because he was in transition. But you see, the Bible talked about this transition. And the Bible calls this blessedness. Now think about this. God, who is wise and merciful, used this seemingly bad situation and turned it into a good one. God used David's transition to destroy the Amalekites. God used this transition in the life of David to fulfill his promise to the Israelites. This long-awaited promise to give them the land that they deserve. The question is, can God still use extraordinary situation to achieve his purpose? Absolutely. Can God turn bad situations into good one? Definitely. Why? Because God is never limited by our present circumstances. God cannot be limited by the bad things that are happening in our lives. 
God is and always will be on top of our circumstances. That's why He's God. Beloved, we have to start reading the Bible as the story of God, which means when you read the Bible, don't look at David, don't look at Absalom, don't look at whoever's hero in the Bible, that we have to follow their examples. The Bible gives us God as the hero of the Bible, the hero of the story. If we start looking at David, we'll be depressed because what happened to him is depressing. But if we start reading the Bible and looking at God as the main protagonist in the story, we will know that God rules the world. He manages the world. God is in control. So when you read your Bible, you should ask the question this, what is God doing? How is his character unfolding? How is he moving and managing the world? Can I still trust God even when I go through transitions? How can God bring good things from bad situations? like my transitions. See, if we go through transitions in life, we almost forget entirely that God never goes on vacation. Have you ever thought of that? God never takes a leave of absence. God never files sabbatical. See, we may be undergoing transitions in life, but God is not. We may find ourselves in weird situations, but it doesn't mean God has abandoned us. It simply means God is doing something out of the ordinary. And sometimes we cannot see it because we're not looking. Sometimes we cannot see it, we're not looking because our lives, because we're busy with so many things. The question is, if God is the true king of Israel, how does God rule? See, in the time of David, it was Saul who was sitting on the throne. So you may ask the question, if Saul is sitting on the throne and not doing his job, how is God doing his job as a true king of Israel? If Saul is sitting on the throne and not doing his job, is God doing something about it? Absolutely. See, because even when kings are seated on the throne, God never vacated his own throne. The real throne is not on the earth. The real throne is found in heaven where God rules you see, when God anointed kings, he does not just sit and relax and then sit, sip espresso. God still reigns. Even now, God still rules. There's a story back there in the Old Testament where Elijah confronted the, the priests of Baal, and he was taunting them. Shout louder, pray louder, because maybe Baal is taking a nap. Beloved, God never takes a nap. He doesn't need it. We need it. God doesn't need it. In the first century of Christianity, there was a huge persecution of the Christian church. And some secular historians would say that God took a back seat in the first century because he allowed so many Christians to die. Some Christians were eaten by lions. Some Christians were torched, burned at the stake. Some Christians were just flogged to death. And some historians would say God did not do anything. He was taking a break, but it's not true. There's one martyr. This is what the Christian church considers the first martyr. It's, his name is Stephen. And then when Stephen was arrested, he was in front of the Sanhedrin, the council. He was put on trial. He had a vision. Listen to Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. It says, But he, that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Now, now, Stephen mentioned Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Of course, right hand of God is a metaphor for authority, for dominion, for rule. What he was saying is that Jesus has the authority. You see, when Stephen had this vision, he was in front of the council. He was on trial. If you just simply go back a little bit um, more chapters back, maybe 10 or 15, you find in the Gospel of, of John that Jesus was also put on trial. On Thursday night, he was arrested, and he was brought to the Sanhedrin. He was put on trial. And the high priest asked him, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, you betcha. Of course not. Okay, this is what Jesus said. Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, you said so. That, that's the contemporary word, you betcha. You said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, that's himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heavens. The same quote that Stephen said, at the right hand of God. What Jesus is saying to the high priest is that, from now on you will see me in authority, in position of absolute authority. It's the same quote. The only difference here with Stephen and Jesus was the posture. With Stephen, he was standing. With Jesus, he was seated on the throne. But you see, whether Jesus is sitting on the throne or, or standing, what's important is the right hand of God. It's a metaphor for authority, for rule, for dominion. When Stephen saw Jesus, he was not on vacation. When Stephen saw Jesus, he was standing at the right hand of God. He was ruling. This is a, a language of enthronement. Jesus rules. When, when Stephen saw Jesus, he was in charge of the heavens and the earth. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 28 before he went up to heaven. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. When Stephen saw Jesus, Jesus had the authority both in heaven and on earth, both in the afterlife and the underworld. Let me tell you this. WEF is not in charge. United Nations is not in charge. S Satan even is not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Jesus rules the world. Pastor, does it include my life in transition? Absolutely. Can God still work out something good from the bad situations in my life? Absolutely. But how does Jesus rule the world exactly? Let me show you a verse. Psalm 68, verse 4. You may have read this, but you may not have realized that this is telling us something. Psalm 68, verse 4 says, Sing to God, this is David writing, Sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. What is that? Who rides on the clouds? Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. So what this verse is saying is that the name of the Lord, which is Yahweh, the Lord rides the clouds. What's important is he is powerful and he rides the clouds. What, what does he mean he rides the clouds? We have to follow the breadcrumbs. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 26. What does it mean to ride the clouds? Moses said, there's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. What Moses is saying is that God 
rides the clouds to help. He's coming to rescue, to help. What Moses is saying is that God is the one who rules and he's coming on the clouds to help, to rescue. You see, God rescues in time of transitions. The whole book of Psalms are full of rescue. Psalm 34 would say, this poor man cried to the Lord and God rescued him. God riding on the clouds means God is coming to the rescue because he used the power to come to rescue. Even including those circumstances where all we see are failure and broken promises. God rules even in transition. And here's what's interesting part. Go back to Jesus Christ, the one that he replied to the high priest. The high priest said, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, it's you betcha. Again, Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus saying? What is he saying? Coming on the clouds of heaven is not just a fancy way of saying Jesus can fly. Coming on the clouds of heaven means Jesus is powerful and he is coming to rescue just like Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus is the second Yahweh who's coming to our rescue. He's not just some powerful superman or batman or whatever, or superhero. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. That phrase tells us that Jesus rules the world. And if you can simply stop and look at yourself and look around at your life, look at what God is doing in your life, you will see that God is working through your life, even in transition. And if that is so, you will experience what David said in Psalm chapter 34, verse, verse 6 to 8. He said, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. Out of all his troubles, the angel of the Lord encamps those around and fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The reason why we cannot see the hand of God in our lives, even in our transitions, is because we're not looking. The reason why we cannot see the hand of God is because we're too busy looking for something else. If you but just stop and pause and look around you and see that God is working in your life, you will see. You will not only see, but you will taste and see that the Lord is good. This is not just a challenge. This is an invitation to seek God, to taste God, to taste His goodness. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you for giving us another hope, another encouragement that we may be going through a transition in life just like David. But even these moments of transition, these seasons where we don't feel any better, we we feel bad about ourselves. We, we don't see any hope. There's always darkness around us. But then you are able to turn these bad things into good because you're a God, a God who can rise on the clouds with power and come to our rescue. Father, encourage us today. Help us to see how you're moving into our lives, how you're coming to our rescue how even this church can be used by you 
to encourage one another. Father, I pray for, for our guests. I pray that you will also allow yourself to be seen in, in a most special way. I pray that this will be an encounter with you, an experience that they will feel, that they will see, that they will taste that you are indeed a good God. In Jesus' name we pray.